Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Masori, and this week I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Luke Chiverton. Morning, John. And this week by Hearts and Southampton psychologist, Dr Gillian Harley. Hello. <laughs> Thanks to you. Gillian, welcome to the Football Psychology Show. You must be pretty happy with how the season is panning out at the moment for the two teams you're working with. Yeah, actually, it's, um, it's going really, really well. It's all very positive. Um, at the moment, which is ideal, um, makes my job a lot easier, um, makes my job very positive as well, which is nice. Um, but yeah, it's going, it's going great. And we were, we were just saying, Gillian, before we, we started recording that you've you've been in post at Hearts, is it for almost kind of two months now? Is that right? Yeah, so just just in the door, but getting there. So Gillian, for listeners that might not be aware of, of your role, do you want to give a, a quick overview of what you do with those two clubs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll start with Hearts. Um, closest to me at the moment uh, so with Hearts I'm in with their first team um, so working with their players so I always try and categorise it into kind of four categories for people when they're like what is it you do um, so it's all about performance development so where we're really good and where we can either get better or transfer what we're really good at across um, so that kind of development side of things then obviously performance struggles so things that we're finding really hard in the game or things that we, we desperately need to improve to, to up our, our game to become that kind of elite level um a wee bit around like kind of mental health and well-being of course um and then a kind of other category because sometimes just life happens and that crops up so yeah in around their first team um a wee bit of work with kind of some of the younger boys that are coming up and through as well um and then down at Southampton I'm in their academy um and I'm across quite a few age groups there kind of from the under 15s up do a wee bit of work with the younger boys as well when required um so it's very different, very similar as well, um, being across the two clubs. But yeah, it's, it's great um, being in, getting that kind of, we were talking about that earlier, but that contrast of two very, very different clubs, um, lots of similarities, but lots of things that we can learn off each other. Um, that's great. And just having like such a wide range of, of people to work with and network with as well. It's, um, it's amazing. It really put, brings on my development as a practitioner, but um, just it's, it's, it's just great. Yeah, I love it. What's that initial period like when you kind of come into a club? You've got a couple of months, as you said now, under your belt. Is it really just about getting to know the players, making them aware of of kind of what you do, or is it a bit more kind of hands-on than than that initially? Um, It's a bit of both. So um, for some of the boys, especially at Hearts, we've got boys that come in from down south, maybe been exposed to sports psychologists before, and then we've got boys that have come through the academy that haven't. Um, so a lot of it is just making sure that they know what the role is and what it is to do. Um, there's still a bit of a misconception that seeing a psychologist is just because you've got bad mental health. Um, so a lot of it is just education around that, letting them know what it is we work with. The diff- even just examples. So um, a lot of the boys quite like to see, not not obviously within detail and it's all confidential, but um, the different things I work with. So at, like physical examples of what we do and how we do it. Um, it's massive at these stages at that kind of early start um, to just build relationships with them, let them know that you're not judging them. So um, a lot of the time when I'm out of training, you can see a couple of eyes, especially your first couple of days, people looking at you thinking, oh, what's she looking for? What's she thinking about? Um, at that point, I'm trying to learn names. It's actually nothing <laughs> nothing I'm looking for at that point. Just trying to set a big squad, especially at Hearts. But yeah, so it's just getting everyone a wee bit more comfortable around you, building those relationships. Um, and then obviously there's a couple of players at the time that when you come in that you're asked to speak to straight away. So it's, it's a kind of bit of both, a, a lot of bit relationship building, getting people comfortable around you. But then there's a couple of people that are just ready to go anyway. We obviously speak to quite a lot of psychologists on this show. And you know the, the thing we constantly go over and over is sort of what you touched upon there, which is that slight kind of fear of the profession in a way in, in football in terms of what, what is a psychologist here to do? Is it, is it because there's something wrong with me or is it they're here to catch me out? What's your perception of how psychology is slowly starting to establish itself within football? Do you think it's, it, it, it's moved on a, a, a lot in the last five years? We certainly get the impression it has. Absolutely. Like it, it, it's so widely accepted. And even though there is those kind of misconceptions or a slight apprehension sometimes from yeah. people, they, they understand it. They, it makes sense. We we look at how many physical hours we put in on the pitch and training and in the gym and with nutrition. And then when you even when you question that, like, what about like psychology? What about working with, oh, well, I suppose I've not spent any hours. I've spent minimal hours and um it's definitely people are willing and people are accepting it. And I think that's like, at the moment, that's all we can ask for. 
I think there's something massive around, um, I know John, I mentioned this earlier as well, but that that regulation, so um, making sure it is a sports psychologist, it's a protected title for a reason, because we're regulated. Um, when we're regulated, we have like kind of legal requirements, confidentiality, our standards of practice. And I think even just educating people on that can be really, really powerful as well, that they, they feel secure. Um, some, some of my clients, if I find they're, they're maybe not sure of that confidentiality. We'll put it on paper and we'll both sign it. Like it is there. It's not. It's not just. Oh, like I promise I'll say anything. Like it is my job. I'm a psychologist. Like so, even just things like that can be really, really effective. Um, but everyone is so willing. Um, I think that's something. Any of the clubs I've been into, any of the clients I've worked with, so we've got working Muay Thai as well. Um, anybody that I work with has just been so open to it, and it's just about creating that understanding. So you're flying at the fact that people are willing. And that's such an important point, I think, because actually as, as part of an article that was on the Football Psychology Show website, I spoke to to Bob McCoon, he's, he's head of performance uh, at Hearts, and we were talking about the fact that I think when you were when you were brought in, Bob was, was absolutely insistent that whoever came in uh, as a psychologist for, for, for the club and, and particularly the first team, I think, was regulated in that way. Because actually... There's no obligation, there's no regulation that states that clubs have to employ a, an accredited psychologist at first team level. Anyway, there's a little bit more regulation, a relatively light touch at academy level. So I just wanted to, to point that out because I think it's, it's great to see that kind of so front and centre of, of the kind of the recruitment policy at heart. Definitely. I think um, it's really important that, that people know understand why it's important to have those qualifications but I think before it wasn't that people were disregarding them or people were were saying oh like we'll not get HCPC it was just that people didn't know like you would never dream of getting a physio in that wasn't HCPC regulated you'd never just be like yeah just come in and before it just the the standards of practice was never understood with a psychologist so it is it's just about people knowing obviously you, you've spoken to Bobby, he's so intelligent, so knowledgeable. Um, so it's just great that we're getting people into those positions that understand about um, the regulation, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, about Hearts and Southampton as we as we go through the show, but I think to start off with, uh, where, where else to kick off other than managerial changes? So Dean Smith's dismissal by Aston Villa last weekend means that more managers have lost their job in England's top flight already this season than in the whole of the 2021 campaign. So it's the highest number of departures at this stage of a, a season for 17 years. Gillian, the, the assumption is that these changes, so bringing a new manager in, will will positively impact players' motivation. But is that is that always the case in, in your experience? I think, again, it's something that's really down to the individual. So it depends on, in that team, how many individuals in that team are going to see that as a positive and generally that will see what way it goes. Um, there's some really nice research on um, challenging threat states. Um, Dr Paul McCarthy, Professor Mark Jones and Dr Jamie Barker. There's a couple of others in there as well that have done some really, really nice um research on it and it's all about how you perceive that situation so that new manager coming in there'll be lots of players thinking this is a fresh slate this is a great opportunity and then there'll be lots of players thinking oh my god I could potentially come out of the team here this could go wrong what if he doesn't like me so actually if you've got a group of 20 people if the majority of them are seeing that as a challenge it'll probably go a positive way but if the majority of them are seeing it's a threat it'll go the other way so um I think it's it's really hard to give a defined answer, but yeah, it definitely could go either way. It's both positive and negative. Something I think is really important is like when they have those initial contacts with the new manager, like how much are they excited? How much does they think oh, I want to work with this guy? This is that can those immediate impressions, those first kind of thirty seconds or whatever it is that people always say. And when you go for a job interview, it's that initial thing, um, that can be massive as well to to sway either way. Um, and obviously what kind of things that, that that manager says at the time as well. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, it's the age-old debate 
I, I think that's it, been going on for probably 30 years in football around whether longevity of a manager is a good thing or whether short, sharp turnarounds kind of sharpen everybody up around the club and kind of get them focused on improving their game again. I suppose um, there's always an interesting thing I think about with this is kind of that perception that the modern player is a little bit different to the player of 20 years ago, say, where managers back then, I guess, for want of a better term, kind of came in and gave everybody a kick up the arse. And so changing the manager was a way of kind of doing that. But you do wonder if the modern player needs a little bit more structure, needs a little bit more support to kind of feel safe with an environment in order to kind of maximise their performance. Do you think there's anything in that in terms of uh, the modern day player kind of looking for that kind of security a little bit more? Yeah, I think, I do think it is really hard. I think a lot of people get complacent when they get comfy and they, they then start to think, or if, you, if you've if you got the, a manager that's in for a long term, that's great if you've got a really good relationship with them. If you've not, then that becomes really hard. Um, so I do think there is something about that. I think as we get the younger generations coming through, they do like change quickly. Like I always talk about like, even down at Southampton, I'll say, oh, I'm a technology babies because they're all just, everything's changing fast and they can get up here now. And uh, we are used to that change. But I think for, for continuity, for, um, I mean, the time and effort you put into learning a tactics, style of play, that kind of thing, for it then to change very quickly, can't be overly effective. So I think um, that turnaround might not always be as effective if unless we're doing them smart and we're getting kind of similar um, appointments are coming in after each other. So it's people that are going to play a similar style of football are going to have a similar style of working. But if you've got somebody coming in and even like sometimes the full schedule can get changed. So the times they're training, like that's not just, oh, I got up at night, like your full sleep hygiene's moved from there. That means your nutrition moves because your whole daily routine changes. So that's a big adjustment for people to make. And that that's always going to have an impact on performance. So does a new manager come in and change it immediately? Or does a new manager come in and change it gradually? Um, so it's just things like that. And I think in football, we're quite quick to, to change things quickly. Like, no, this is how I do it. If you think of any other occupation, normally a new manager wouldn't change everything at once. They would come in and they would just go, "All oh, right, we're going to we're going to implement a uniform, and oh, we're going to change this a wee bit." And people do it gradually, but in football we don't do that, and I don't think it's always overly effective. Um, but some people are at some points where you're in, they do just need that clean slate. Yeah, it, it always seems, I don't know if this is just the way it's reported, but it always seems the first change that a coach makes is to ban tomato ketchup from the canteen. I'm not sure if that's true in your experience, Gillian. It's just every time that I see a new managerial appointment reported in the press, it's always oh, the, the tomato ketchup's out of the canteen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there's always just that big, big change. Somebody comes in and it, you need to make your own mark and it needs to be your thing or it's... Um, but yeah, sometimes I think we could be a bit smarter with how we do those changes and oh, is that how we do it? And that's great. I've got the idea here, let's change this. And people don't like change. And we sometimes we crave change and then it happens, you go, this isn't how we used to do it. And it's so it is, it's just getting getting people comfortable with change. I think footballers are so adaptable and we don't give them that credit. And like I don't think people realise like how many how many people you speak to on a daily basis if you come into a club, like especially like I mean, even down south, but even in at heart, it's like our boys will come in and I mean, you can be speaking to 40 different people in a day at times and changing everything different depending on who it is, depending on what coaches lead, what session, depends on what you're doing. Like it's just constantly adapting for them. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you get managers coming in and the full menu is wiped and this has changed. And oh, yes, yeah, it, it must be really hard to constantly adapt um, and to constantly feel like that change is going to come because, you know, maybe results aren't going your way or results are going your way. So you're like, oh, well, we're getting a wee bit more money in. So that might, so it's, there's a constant uncertainty in football um, that actually a lot of the work that I, I do sometimes is just about let's get comfortable with it, let's get comfortable with things being control and changing. Um, not a lot of people talk about controlling the controllables, but actually I prefer to say like, let's sit comfy in the uncontrollables. Um, you'll get a lot more done that way. So yes, yeah, there's there's always big changes going on. I think that's a really good point about footballers not getting credit for that. Because if you think about the rest of us in our kind of day-to-day work lives, the idea of kind of everything fundamentally changing within the organisation that you work in is absolutely terrifying. Whereas for a lot of footballers, it's an absolute fact of life and they kind of just get on and do what they're there to do. Um, I do think there's a really good point around what you said there, Gillian, around, the, you know, 
how quickly and the amount that a new manager or a new coach comes in to change. Actually, the clubs that tend to do kind of the churn of managers well, I'm thinking of the likes of Watford and Chelsea, it's probably because the amount of influence that the manager has is, is fairly limited. So there's lots of structures in place in the club that don't change when a new manager comes in. I mean, looking at a couple of the um, a couple of the changes that have happened in the Premier League recently, I'm thinking of Dean Smith at Aston Villa or, or Daniel Farker at um, Norwich. You do sort of get the impression that they were very, very influential managers that kind of covered all parts of the club, which sort of suggests that that change might be a lot more challenging for the players. And there were certainly some tweets on the Aston Villa side uh, from the likes of Jack Grealish talking about what a great relationship they had with Dean Smith and how, you know, he clearly... Uh, his influence pervaded that entire club. Um, and and so, so changing that is going to be difficult, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, I'm sure you guys can appreciate it in your own work. When, when somebody leaves, it, it's one of your kind of closer colleagues in work. And if that's your go-to person, so if that's a person that every morning you're coming in and you have that that conversation that sets up your day and then they're gone, that there's a period there where you need to either find a new person or you need to, to regulate that on your own. And I think, yeah, it's Matt, I think people don't, don't understand that that adjustment that players make and even just like what what you value in football or what you value in your job like that that plays a massive part in your motivation and why you turn up in the morning how your attitude goes so if you really value your relationship with your manager and how that encourages you to work really well then if you come in and that manager's gone then there's a there will be points where you're like why am I doing this and this is really uncomfortable and then how do people do people see that as Right. Okay. Let's let's develop a new because I, I know I, I'm really I work really well and I've got a good close relationship with the manager. Your manager might come in and be a very not standoffish in a negative way, but might just be one of these. You got a lot of managers that come in in the background and their background staff are on the floor and doing a lot of stuff, but they kind of like to to work from a slightly further away point. So it is really really um, difficult for them, and I think. It's something that a lot of people don't notice and especially when you've got fans behind as well saying, we want this change, we want this better and you've got a manager coming in that's got loads of ideas. You've got a, a bunch of 20 boys going, oh, this is a completely different job to yesterday. It might be in the same strip colours, but it is a, a, sometimes they can come in and it's just nothing like what they used to have. I suppose one way of countering that, Lee kind of touched on it there, Gillian, is yeah, by having some kind of structure in place at the club. And, and we spoke recently to to, to the Wickham a managerial partnership to Gareth Hainsworth and Richard Dobson they're actually the longest serving managerial duo in the, in the football league so not much change at Wickham but one thing that they that they have kind of instilled there is empowering the players to to kind of motivate other squad members so you know if there was a change of coach uh, at Wickham not expecting one but if there was then it would actually be other players within the dressing room potentially that we would kind of keep those motivation levels up. So they have kind of a group of what they call kind of chiefs or or actually kind of cultural architects now that they're terming them. Is that is that something that you've kind of come across at, at other clubs that have interest, that kind of group of kind of core players that have that responsibility for the kind of, you know, motivating and, and, um, and overseeing kind of other players? Yeah, definitely. There's always, there's always key people in there that, are normally even like when a new manager comes in they'll help settle the new manager and help them know everybody in their quirks and all the what staff even just like not not directly football staff but who they are and who's your go-to and there's always those really really effective players that are just really really self-aware really good at their own personal management but then they can also help regulate other people and it, it is, it's, it's crucial to have these characters in your changing room um, that can keep everybody steady and they'll be more heavily relied on um, in those moments where there's those big changes are happening or um, relationships even just break down um, with the manager for other players. And it's not a new appointment, um, but yeah, it's so important that you've got those kind of key players that are there. Um, your seasoned pros, aren't they? they? They've been there, done it, they're, they're so used to it. And sometimes they'll surprise you, sometimes it's not always the seasoned pros, but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's so important to have that really good cohesive team and those leaders right at the front there. I suppose um, it's it's the relationships with other players that are, that are more constant. And I know there's turnover of players as well in terms of kind of transfers and things like that. But yeah, probably a new manager coming in is going to be looking to those kind of senior pros in the dressing room to kind of, you know, that's probably the first group of players that they're going to turn to to kind of win over and get their ideas across. And then that kind of helps them to initiate the changes that they want to put through the club, presumably. Is, is that the most effective way of doing things like this? I think so, yeah. It's, it is. It's, I think we 
naturally we, we don't like change and I don't care uh, some people maybe like change but it's always planned in football if you're a footballer it's not planned by you anyway it might be planned by someone else um so yeah I think it is just in that kind of slow seeing other people accepting it can be really really helpful or seeing those kind of more key players how they are um, dealing with it what they're kind of doing how even just perspective like how how you view that change so um, even if it is just those changing of conversations that the boys are saying about what if this goes wrong or what if I'm out with team or what if he doesn't like me and somebody else just giving you that counter perspective to, to look at things um, there's actually a really nice example um, with uh, Kevin Bridges he talks about um, going out um, on a night out and he's standing at a bus stop and a man pulls out a knife on him and asks him for a pound and he's going to stab him and he, I mean it's a really funny sketch I'm sure you, you could see it on YouTube if you wanted to um, but actually most people would go well, how do Kevin Bridges feel well he was scared he was worried he was what do you think of the man no he was not a nice man he was very much if it's really really negative so all your all your perception of that is very negative actually the way he pitches it is that like he could have months of physical trauma years of emotional trauma and I mean this guy's giving him out for a pound like a pound that's it and it's actually really really nice the way he phrases it that's perspective isn't it so it's the same with your your manager coming in is is he giving you a great opportunity or is he potentially going to stab you? So it is, it's, it's a really, I mean, I know it's a bit of a stupid example, but it's actually great. Like it's how we view that situation coming in and having people in your dressing room that's got counter perspective. So it's not about every time making it fluffy and nice and like I with a nice, a good guy. Um, but it's just about if you can be aware of both, then you'll maybe fall somewhere in the middle. And actually, you shouldn't have a knife out on you, but at least it's not the end of the world because you can get out of this for a pound. So, um, uh, yeah, it is just about having those different perspectives, which you need a good good unit there in that team to share them. Um, but yeah, that can that can be so helpful, so pivotal in making that a, a positive change when we have new managers in. I think that example is probably very pertinent if you just found out Jose Mourinho is taking over at the club that you play for uh, in terms of being worried about the knife being pulled on you. But no, um, so we've talked we've talked a bit about um, about the the managers that have just left the Premier League. Um, let's switch our attention to some of the incoming managers. Um, probably the most intriguing appointment has to be Antonio Conte at Spurs. Now. Conte is a coach who's renowned for instilling sort of incredible team spirit um, at most, if not all, of his former clubs. But he's also known for his kind of meticulous attention to detail bordering on obsession. Um, In fact, there's a recent article that described the demands that he puts on his players as sort of blurring the lines between private and professional lives. And that kind of raises an interesting question in, in the field of psychology. When does commitment to kind of being the best become mentally unhealthy and how do elite athletes kind of strike the right balance there's a a massive desire and assumption that you give everything as a footballer and and I understand it but not people need those points where they can they can switch off and I think that's where you have that obsession becomes a point where you can't switch off from it and you need to have those breaks you need to have times where actually you don't think about anything football and you don't are invested in family or a different hobby or even a different interest even if it's just reading something and like a lot of footballers read and you say what do you need about ah football autobiographies (laughs) read a box and want to read something and yeah it's, it's so important that we don't get obsessed like I think we look obsessed as being a good thing and you can be obsessed in the moment so you can be obsessed when you're in at the training ground and wanting to do everything perfect and or not perfect but everything to high standard possible and being really really articulate in what you're doing and careful and really thorough but if you have a a continuous obsession outside of the club when things go bad that's when you start to see negative implications on people's mental health because you become obsessed with the negative and obsessed with what's going wrong and then that transfers into your home life which then can cause issues there and it just yeah it's it's really really um a really careful place that you need to be in I'm not disencouraging players to be obsessed in the moment be obsessed in the end but it's just yeah it's something that you need to be very very careful about um and making sure that it's it's a healthy obsession which means that you can switch it off and you can take time away from it and, and Gillian we get the impression from from kind of speaking to psychologists and coaches on this show that that, that gaining that sense of perspective is even more difficult now than it was 
20 years ago. One of the reasons being just how pervasive social media is in, in football in everyone's life, but particularly kind of footballers' life. Uh, how do you, do you, the players that, that you work with, generally speaking, kind of how, how do they view the impacts of, of social media? I think what's really, really hard about it is that see when things are going well it is impossible not to get sucked in like sometimes thousands of people are telling you how amazing you are like I don't care who you are like that feels good that does so then you get sucked in and then all of a sudden things don't go well and those thousands of people have turned and there's I mean a lot of people will say football fans can be fickle and they'll love you one minute and maybe not the next and I mean I think that's just natural when you people are so passionate about football and people love it and it's amazing but yeah it's a really difficult thing to to not get too absorbed into and to to remember that even just like you know we talk about like the a lot of like him trying to make sure that social media is a wee bit more regulated with who's using it and that they can't just say what they want and there's a bit of accountability there um but at the moment there isn't that accountability and and that can be hard because people can tell you anything um and it is it's just it's very, it can be very very hard and I think it's that when everything's going good it, it pulls you in and you kind of get suckered into it and then it's, it's harmless because it's, it's flourishing my confidence then also we can become reliant on that and we start to look for external sources of validation for our performance so if you are a footballer in a Premier League you should know whether you played well or not you shouldn't have to check social media but we learn to get that validation from likes on the photo of the game and people giving us nice messages and comments. And we start to then not regulate our own way of validating performance very well. So then we then when that's removed, it then has a further negative impact on our performance because we're not getting that validation and we've forgotten how to do it for ourselves. So you see it a lot in the younger kids as well that as you as you grow cognitively, um, as you develop, you initially start with like getting your your validation from adults because that's the people that know and the people that accept it. And as they go through that stage where they start to learn to do it from themselves, so that getting naturally adults start to kind of retract that, you see a crash in their confidence. We never said I played well today. We never said you played bad. Oh no, no but he, he only said well done once. Well, did he give you any negatives? No. So it is and. We almost social media almost takes us back to that stage where we we just learn that validation externally we we see it we we post a picture of the game and it's got thousands of likes now we have a not so bad game maybe not a bad game but post another picture and it, it doesn't get the same amount of likes and people are going oh maybe and they start doubting their own performance like how how many years have you put into to learning this game to developing the experts and positions that are saying you played really well but social media has taken part of that validation away and next thing you're swaying on on what you're doing so it is it's, it's really difficult it has massive power um, I know a lot of the boys aren't on it or maybe are on it but only for for close friends and family and I completely understand why it's it's it can be really damaging really positive but can be really damaging as well it's a funny one, isn't it? Because uh, you mentioned Professor Mark Jones earlier. We had him on the show. And I think his, his the phrase he said was, I can't believe any footballer would be on social media because his general view was that the negatives and the risks far outweigh any positives that you could possibly get from it. In your experience of kind of working with, with, with professional clubs, is it something that the clubs are concerned about? Is it is it something that they try and have a strategy or is there a danger that you try and control the players' lives too much and actually, you know, that's not a good thing either? So do they trust the judgment of the players? Is it a case of just advising and kind of being there for them to kind of help them, help them deal with it? How do clubs tend to approach it? I think there's a lot of, like a lot of education around it. So like what kind of stuff you put out there, what, how, long it's traceable what like even if it's up for a minute what happens like that kind of stuff um at most of the clubs I've I've dealt with there's kind of maybe like a codes of conduct so things that they, they can't upload or things that they can't they shouldn't be doing or saying um, same with like your codes of conduct for behavior and um, there's normally a social media policy um that just helps maybe guide them a wee bit um but ultimately I mean it is their social media as they they can put on what they want so yeah I think it, a lot of it is just education on listen if it goes up this is what can happen. And some, again, I think people like to learn from examples. So maybe they give them a couple of examples of players that maybe it's not went very well for and um, things like that. But they are, regardless of what happens, they're very, very supportive as a club to try and help. Um, I think what probably is the issue is that the players don't normally come quick enough in my experience. So 
maybe getting an argument with somebody online and instead of just informing a club there and then they try and resolve it and it just it, yeah it, I think the quicker they get that support like we've got communication officers for, for a reason and people that are in for specialise in all of this and yeah so it's just a, a lot of kind of pre- trying to prevent but then also a wee bit of reactive and how we support them and help them um, and sometimes they, they just they don't they don't do anything wrong and it still all comes their way um, so it's just yeah it's just about trying to help people process that um, I, I, I do it like that I, I mean I get I get where Mark Jones is coming from it's, it is um, it, it's very intense to be in that limelight and to have people just watch your every move and like even stuff like if you're out somewhere and somebody sends you a tweet oh so you know is they buying apples like that's a massive invasion of somebody's privacy and for for a, for a fan or the person that sent that tweet like that's just like oh I saw one of my idols today and he was getting apples like that that that's brilliant um but yeah for somebody that's out doing the, try just trying to do their shop for their children um that that's very invasive um so yeah I think it's as people fans need to see that presence and they want to interact with people um so it's just it's hard because you need to try and keep them happy and but yeah it's the, the boundaries of it are not not as um concrete for people so it's it can be difficult yeah literally kind of started this this segment so we're talking about uh Antonio Conte and, and kind of in his reputation for being uh, a football obsessive and I suppose one of the one of the questions that kind of stems from that potentially is, you know, does that kind of environment have a bit of a have a bit of a shelf life, and and, and also does it have an impact in kind of your experience on kind of players' willingness to kind of express themselves? Um, and I suppose in that sense, kind of talk kind of openly about how they're feeling. For example, if they feel that everything's being scrutinised, I think yeah, it's. It's hard because you do you do get footballers that come in that it's just their job. So they come in, they do their training, they do it to as high a standard as they can, they do their gym, they do their tactics, analysis, any of that stuff, and then they go home and they have a life and they have family and they have hobbies. So if you're if you're managed by somebody that is obsessed, or if you've got a lot of people in your team that's obsessed, there starts to become that feeling of like I'm I'm not doing it right and I'm not doing it good enough and there's no right or wrong way no no two people live their lives the same but yeah it can be it can be really um emotion provoking or thought provoking um that people are maybe not doing what they should be or there's there's a it feels like there's a prescriptive way to get it right if if you become obsessed but it's um it, it can be really really challenging for people it's I mean football's constantly full of comparisons you're competing for a position you're competing for a jersey um so where we naturally start to compare and then you've got somebody that's saying, "Oh, this is you're not doing it right if you're not thinking football twenty four seven, and you're not doing this and this obsession massive." And I mean, it's good, but it's not any less effective to to not be obsessed to to go home and just think about what you're making for dinner and what golf's on the TV. And it's as it's really it's really important to to acknowledge that that there's not a, a prescriptive way of being elite um, in the sense of obsessions and um, practice. It's a really great, uh, I read an article recently that was talking about, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo has quite a reputation for being very obsessed with, you know, about kind of maintaining his physical, um, you know, he, he's at the very top of the game and, and it's his obsession that's kind of got him there as the story we're always fed. There was a great interview with Patrice Ebver who says he's an amazing person. He's got absolute respect for him down to kind of everything he does, doesn't put sugar in his tea, very careful about everything he eats. He said he's an incredible athlete, but he's pretty boring guy to go for dinner with because <laughs> he's just obsessed about everything that's in the dinner so that's a really interesting example of there not really being a line between kind of focusing on being the best at football and just kind of having a good time with one of your teammates <laughs> no absolutely um like even myself like my week is just flooded with football it's just constantly and then I come home I've got family that are really, really football orientated as well. So you come in and you want to, you go on a night out and people want to talk about football because that's a job. And like, if I start talking about earth cables and live cables and electrician, my friends that are, are sparks are going to be like, what are you talking about? Why are you talking about work? Well, you're talking about my work. It's like that, that's, that's what I do. And it must be really hard because it's, it's an occupation that is people's hobby and people's interests. So, you forget that when they come home, that's what people want to talk about and they want to know. And as it's, it's, you're constantly 
absorbed into football so sometimes you do need to be like actually don't care I don't want to speak about it I want to talk about something totally meaningless um but for other people that they still light up when you when you mention it regardless of how how much football they've had in their week um they still want to talk about and it is just a a pure passion and for me I go through phases of that I go through where I could talk about it all day every day and could contact with you guys for for four hours and then you'll catch me in a week and I'll be like no (laughs) I don't want to talk about it at all and so yeah I think it is it's just getting that balance but yeah there's everybody's so different on it and I think it depends on what you have and life, where you get your value from, where you get motivated. Um, it's amazing when you see people that have got that, but it's, it's just as amazing when you see people that actually walk out that door and they could be anybody in the world because they've just, they don't think about it until they're back in the next day. I switched our attention from from Ronaldo to, to Angelo Conte, so two, two quite different individuals, I think. <laughs> so there was a video that uh, was on social media uh, this week or, or, the, or the week before, which showed Conte walking around the, the Chelsea training ground, picking up corner flags, which I think anyone that's played Sunday League will, will know that that, uh, that is very much part of uh, a footballer's remit, but not something we see that often when it comes to, to kind of Premier League training grounds. And um spoken to, to Bruno Di Michaelis kind of previously, he was Chelsea's former um, head of performance about instilling an ethos of supporting fellow squad members. So you know, that could be just picking up corner flags or it could be you know, helping a, a player, a fellow player when it when they're under the kind of glare of the, the media spotlight. In, in kind of your your experience, how much of an impact does that that support from kind of fellow teammates have on on, on performances. Yeah, it's massive. Um, it's I mean, it, it sounds so silly, like people picking up cones and 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 just something very simple that you go. They should be doing that, but it just for me, it shows a really good unit. It shows commitment as well. So not only who picks up a cone, but who picks up the furthest away cone. So he's got that wee bit more commitment that they're going to get it. And um, it, it, like it, it, it sounds so silly, but it. it it demonstrates that that we're all in it together and it's you'll have the same people that pick it up very like very very closely you'll get the same people that are kidding on to take their bib off 10 times because they don't want to pick anything up and uh, it's so important that you have people that are just right in integral parts of the team massive kind of personalities in the way of like motivating so not just like loud and and those people that set those standards that, that set that expectation of actually we do this together we do it as a team um similarly like when the boys walk in do they walk in as a unit or do they walk in in dribs and drabs um these things can all be telling it they're not it's not black and white it doesn't mean that just because they walked in in dribs and drabs they're not they're not very together as a team absolutely not but they can be telling at times um what's going on there and just setting those those standards and boundaries again um so yeah it's it's really important that we have people that are doing that um and actually just keeping people a bit grounded as well at times and, and just showing that appreciation for, for the people that pick the cones up every day or the people that put the cones out. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really important. It's nice to see it as well. How much focus is there uh, at elite clubs, Gillian, on team spirit? Because it seems an obvious thing. It's something that everybody is kind of obsessed with. You know, successful teams, the thing you always hear is that successful teams have amazing uh, group cohesion and team spirit. I think there's that famous Steve Archibald quote that that's kind of an illusion of having been successful is that you kind of look back and that's what makes you think you had a great team spirit. But is it something that managers and clubs really work hard to foster because I'd imagine that most squads feel like they have a good team spirit but what really separates kind of what what is great team spirit and what separates that from just a regular kind of setup yeah I think I find it really hard like it's one of those ones what came first the chicken or the egg so you're not going to have really successful performances without having a good cohesive team but also your team's probably not going to be that good because of if it's not performing well. But then also like what is good performance and what is success? So you could go out win six three. Yeah. So is that a good performance? Because you've you've got the points, you've won the game. So you'll have players in that team that have maybe somebody scored a hat trick, somebody's performed really well, and they go in really, really happy, really content. That was a good day. So happy with their teammates, happy with everything. You've then maybe got a goalkeeper that's going, well, we didn't all step at the press. So 
people didn't play play to the tactics, which led to us conceding three goals. You this didn't happen, that didn't happen. People maybe put individual reward in which then puts team at risk. And they did that too often. So you've got a couple of defenders that are unhappy or a couple of midfielders that are unhappy. So is that a good performance or is it not? So I think what, what can be quite tricky in, in those kind of sayings and um, kind of quotes is that actually how you might measure success and see progress if, you, if you're a manager on a relegation battle, maybe all you care about is those three points. But for players, they have individual versions of success and what that looks like for them. So actually can be really hard to say to to maybe say that one causes the other maybe it's a bit more of a correlation um because it is it is challenging because what some people see is a really good performance I mean you can go to go to games that are four and five now and somebody will come off raging not happy or somebody gets subbed halfway through and you see how 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 annoyed they are because they scored two and they could have got a hat track or they wanted to play the full 90 so what as individuals what we see as success and what we see um, as, as progress or as a good performance isn't always what our team sees um, so it can be quite be quite careful in making that assumption that just because what you perceive as a success then that should bring that unit together um, but I think what probably is that the main thing is in those kind of results that the conversations that are had so it's not maybe necessarily about the results but the relationship with the team so they can come in and have that discussion and whether that's a bit more heated or not um, doesn't necessarily matter that they're actually comfortable enough that they can have those digs and people can also defend themselves and say why they've done that. Um, I think that's really important and that's what brings a good unit that is an open space. And I, I mean, I'm under no illusion that it's not always nice and fluffy and, and friendly. Um, but again, that, that shows really, really good rapport built within your team, really good um, relationships there that people can can say what they think um, and people can respond how they believe as well. So um, yeah, it's crucial. You're never ever going to, if you've got a disjointed team, you're never ever going to be overly successful. Um, but yeah, it's just about being cautious on that, what success is, I suppose, um, or what a good performance is, because for some it might not be for others. Just just on that point, Gillian, how, how do you deal with, with players that just don't get on with each other? I suppose kind of the Andy um, Cole, Teddy Sheringham thing. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. I've not, not come up. Um, for it too much um, it's yeah like how do you deal and work with people that don't go on with each other I mean it's probably a lot of avoidance <laughs> um, to start with but yeah like for me obviously any any one-to-one time that you, you spend with them it's all about just understanding where they're coming from so actually we both have the same goal we just have different views on how we should do it um, that kind of thing can be can be really really helpful um, just yeah like basic conflict resolution isn't it like where are they coming from why are they thinking that why might they have behaved that way so um, going back to that kind of individual reward that puts a team at risk like why might an individual want to have that reward and potentially put that well they've not been starting every week they've not been playing very well so actually it's really crucial for them to 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 impact the game and to have something to play a key part in it um but for you you're, you're in a team every week you're you're very settled and very comfortable in your position so um, actually you're just all about not putting the team at risk um, so just looking at that kind of stuff can be really really helpful for people um, just having that that understanding of where somebody's coming from and it might not make them get on better but they maybe have a wee bit more acceptance of each other I, I definitely can relate to that point around the fact that uh, players have to be able to challenge each other I mean you know, John and I regularly get back to the dressing room after recording a podcast and there's teacups being thrown honest conversations being had about the performance of, uh, of uh, each person <laughs> absolutely <laughs> needs to happen um, Gilly, we're obviously recording in the middle of an international break so uh, it sort of seems appropriate that we devote the final part of the show to, to the challenges that this creates for players um, so the history of international football is kind of rife with example of players who you know have struggled to perform at, at an international level um, despite having massive success uh, at their domestic clubs and vice versa I suppose so you know for every Paul Scholes whose international career was largely quite disappointing versus the heights he reached playing for Manchester United there's a Luke Chris Podolsky, who was absolutely killing it for Germany, but rarely playing for his for his club. I, I guess you know how disruptive is a fortnight away with with the national team to a player's state of mind, especially when they're kind of on a development process with their club. 
as you talked a lot about kind of form and things going well, which is definitely happening at Hearts and Southampton where you are at the moment. How much is a, is two weeks away with the national team, despite being a huge privilege and an honour? How much of it of it is a distraction? Um, I'm not sure necessarily that it's a distraction. I think it's probably a disruption. So it's for a lot of the boys like you don't get annual leave as a footballer or, or somebody that works in football. And I understand you get points in season where it's off season, but when everybody else is going home for four days with their family, so a lot of the boys maybe don't, their family don't live with them, they're located somewhere else, that that can be quite mentally draining that actually everyone else has got four days off and I've not. And my next four days off is dependent on whether I play really well here. So like, it's a massive internal conflict of like, it's such a privilege to pay for your country to to get them to a place that obviously like Scotland have been doing much much better in recent years and like that that is such a privilege to be part of that but also I really want I need time to myself and time off and that everyone else in my team's getting that and that that can be it can be a not nice place to be in because you start to then guilt or um, guilt starts to keep in or you maybe feel a wee bit kind of conscious of the fact that you shouldn't feel that way, um, but it is natural that if everybody else in your work got got days off, and but but you're really 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 good at your job, we we want you to come in. Look, like that that is nice, but how come everyone else is getting time off? So I think it's a disruption. It's a, a massive routine change for them as well. So obviously they have to fly somewhere. That again, we're looking at your sleep hygiene gets moved, and it's not uh, we we as humans mess about the sweet sleep like it's it's easily adjusted, um, but it's not. It takes. I think it's for every half an hour you move your your sleep pattern, it takes about a week to adjust to that. So if you're then going on a flight, you've got a time difference, you're jet lagged, then you've got another flight and you're jet lagged again and you're back into training the next day. Like You've got maybe two two or three weeks potentially where that, that player's having to readjust their sleep because their sleep's out, their eating's kind of out, they're, they're, they're really all over the place. So it's more, I think, a disruption um, than, than anything. Um, and then also, like, it's an overload of information that's not always the information you've been getting before. So having to to change your your way you are physically as well, whether that's your your tactics, the style of play, um, even some. I mean, some boys you see it's position, it's positional because they when they come into to even the Scotland squad, they're maybe not playing in the same position they would with their their club. So it is just um, a, a big adjustment they need to make, and it's one they need to make quickly. Um, while everyone else is sunning themselves for got their feet up so it can just be yeah it can be quite quite hard for them um but yeah it's it's something I think um, most of the boys relish it and they absolutely are, are all for it um but it's just yeah trying to to get them in a place where they they can make that change and for somebody that's maybe not obsessed that time off is really valuable for them because it is that decompression wee bit of distancing um playing catch up with family because obviously they're busy at the weekends or They've got a lot on their schedules, so there's moments where it's catch up time for them as well. Um, so yeah, it can it can be a, a bit disruptive for them. Um, but I think probably when you get the rewards from it, then they're they're happy to to deal with that disruption. And I get I guess to the end that that's only kind of been heightened by by COVID and the travel restrictions that that come with that, uh, and also I suppose the, the fact that players generally you know, play play international football more frequently than they used to as well yeah definitely it's just kind of heightened everything hasn't it and even in on your days off with covid you're a wee bit more restricted in what you can do and it's much better now but but before it was always a wee bit more restricted as well so yeah it's just as it's just it's constantly being adaptable being flexible um as a footballer and i think it is something we don't give them enough credit for um, I'm singing their praises today. I'm actually a good bit this morning, but um, they are. Yeah, that is. It's the, they're constantly adapting and being flexible. And sometimes I think we just forget that they're, they're not robots. And if your work chopped and changed you about like that as much, then there would be po- points where your performance and work dipped. Um, I think it is. We're, we're human. It's natural. I suppose on the flip side, you know, 
getting into your national team and kind of getting getting minutes on the pitch for your national team, it, it is such a privilege. And actually, I suppose the opposite effect, despite it being very disruptive and very difficult, actually a lot of players can kind of kick on through kind of making it at an international level and it can really enhance their club careers. I mean, you talked about Scotland. Um, I'm a QPR fan and, and Lyndon Dyke, since he's been playing for Scotland, you could just see that there's a spring in his step, you know, that his confidence is kind of just growing week on week. And I think being involved in Scotland and Scotland being on a good run has definitely kind of translated into kind of club performances. So, so it's not all bad, is it, I think, is the point. Absolutely not. And even even at academy level, like you see the boys come back in and for the next two weeks, it'll be, oh, England International, Wales International. And it's, I mean, it's said in jest, but I mean, it, what they're getting is that 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 validation, like you're smashing it right now and they'll get, they're walking with their chest a wee bit puffier. And yeah, it's, it's definitely, it can have massive positive effects and I, I don't want to seem too to like what I was saying before was too negative on international duty like absolutely it can have that that positive side um, to it and I think like it also acts as a good motivation when they know international duty is coming up and those selections are getting made um, you see maybe people are a wee bit more um, motivated and they've got a bit more effort in it training and so yeah it's definitely a really nice carrot to be dangling with the players and it's something that obviously to play for your country, like it must be an outstanding feeling and then to get success with your country must be even better. So that that's something that the boys will crave and they want to to feel it again. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely can do wonders for, for that motivation. And it's just another goal, isn't it? And people, we, we like goals as humans, we like to achieve. So it's just another thing that they can strive towards, which is, is great. And I, I don't think you're being negative at all. I think it's that classic thing where fans are just so unforgiving about this kind of thing. They just think it's so black and white that it sh- you should be so privileged to play for your country. There should be nothing else to it. Actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. And as you said, like you know, it, you know, I, I'm sure a player can feel a privilege as well as feeling that it's a little bit disruptive and difficult. It, it's possible for it to be both, right? So I, I don't think it. I don't think it all has to be positive or all has to be negative. I think fans just aren't very good at, at nuance, basically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think. We're so programmed to think in black and white. It's good that it's bad. It's actually like life is so grayscale. Sports psychology is so grayscale. And so yeah, it's just actually like being comfortable that you can be both. Like, how good is it when you've got a family event that you get to see all your family? But how often do you go to going? Oh, like I'm going to need to do this and I'm going to need to do that. And it is like you you can have those those hybrids of emotions. that, that you actually you feel both there's times where you're excited for something but you're worried and yeah it's the same with international duty I'm sure they're absolutely privileged that they're really looking forward to it that they want to do their absolute best but yeah there'll be that wee voice as well going oh you could have four days in the house or you could be doing this or you could be going here and yeah absolutely when you, when's your next break off oh well it's probably not going to be till February now or um, yeah so it can be difficult. Gillian, thanks so much for, for coming on the show this week and lo- looking forward to, to when we record the, the four hour version of this, this show when <laughs> yeah. you're uh, when you're really on when you're really on top of it. It's not like you get many listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure and um, best of luck at, at Hearts and Saints for, for the rest of the season. No, absolutely. Thanks very much for having me on and hopefully give you something relatively interesting to think about. Well, listeners, that's about all we've got time for this week. Um, as I said, huge thanks to Gillian for taking the time to speak to us. Luke, pleasure as, as always. Well, uh, I'll see you in the dressing room for that uh, <laughs> that post-pod dressing down. And um, we'll be back in, in two weeks' time with another look at the psychology stories across English and European football. See you then.